Part three of Chapter thirteen of Eyes Like the Sea by Mor Yokoi. Translated by R. Nisbet Bain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. I appeared the next day at his headquarters in full parade, and they admitted me before any one else. Again they made me sit down in the inner apartment and drew the bolt before the door of the outer room. Stretched out on the table was a large military map which embraced Upper Hungary and Galicia. "'You have brought very important information with you from Comorn,' said he, in a low voice. "'Considering the time when you set out, you have arrived here with astonishing rapidity. You must now take the reply back, which will contain the directions of the Council of War and the appointment of the new Commandant, who will be gazetted to-night. Can you make your way back to the fortress with this dispatch? I'll try. You must get back without fail. What's your plan? To go back by the same road, in the same manner, and in the same disguise is impossible. The wolves tore two of my comrades to pieces. The Croats captured the third, and as he may have confessed everything, they would recognize me at once if I appeared before their eyes as I am now. Besides, there is no conceivable reason why gypsies should wish to leave the open plain in order to get into a bombarded town. This dispatch can only be conveyed to Comorn by a woman who is obliged to go there on some unimpeachable business and is provided with an Austrian safe conduct. The general clapped his hands together in amazement. And do you know of any woman who would undertake such a thing? Certainly I do. Where? What's her name? That's my secret, General. The difficulty of getting into the fortress is also very much increased by the fact that the appointment of Richard Guyon as the new commandant has already become generally known. The General leaped furiously from his seat. Who, then, has made this public? It is here in the official gazette, I replied, drawing out of my pocket that morning's issue of the Kesliny. The General tugged his short moustache still shorter. Well, well, I see that we Magyars have yet to learn the art of keeping a secret. The enemy knows it now, but the Comorn folks do not know it. I have already hit upon a good idea of enabling the mandate of the Council of War to reach their hands. By a carrier pigeon, or a balloon, I suppose. A foreign passport is necessary for my plan. That you shall have. An English passport beased by the embassy, in whose name? in the ladies. Then you must give us the lady's name. Then I gave him my real name, as the lawful wife of Mugi Pakatoy. And you? Will you get into the fortress? Possibly, as that lady's coachman. Possibly not at all. But the dispatch will get in, anyhow. And how will this lady of yours manage to hide the dispatch? I can tell you beforehand, that even if your lady were provided with a safe conduct from the Princess Vindisgrates herself, and so got right through the hostile camp into the invested fortress, the Austrians would indeed welcome her most courteously, but they would at the same time say to her, Would your little ladyship be so good as to step into that side chamber? There you will find a complete set of ladies' clothes. Would you be so kind as to put them on, if they are a little more abundant than your own? That doesn't matter. The toilette you have brought with you may remain here, down even to the shoes and stockings. Whenever you like to come back again, you can re-exchange your clothes. For they know that it is possible to write on chemises with invisible ink, and reproduce the writing by means of chemical reagents. 
It is also possible for the heels of your boots to have secret openings, in which a letter written on straw paper might be inserted. They might also retain the comb with which you fasten up your hair, for a valuable message might be written thereupon in microscopic letters. All this they may do, if they like, and yet this lady of mine will convey the dispatch into the fortress. I should like to know her secret. Tis a very simple one. She will learn the whole dispatch by heart, from beginning to end. The general began to laugh. Oh, ho, ho, my dear friend, you don't suppose that we would entrust our couriers with a dispatch in good Hungarian for the enemy to snap it up on the way, and thus learn about our military operations. It may also be deliberately betrayed. In the times in which we now live, men are quick enough to discover excuses for changing their saddles. This dispatch contains all our secrets, where we are strong, where we are weak, where we want to assume the offensive, where we are obliged to stand on the defensive. Such a dispatch would be worth two hundred thousand florins to the enemy at the very least. I can assure you, General, that neither I nor this lady will betray it. You couldn't if you would, for the whole dispatch is in cipher. Take it and look at it. Do you understand a word of it? Can any one possibly learn it by heart? The writing which he placed in my hand was composed of a jumble of letters grouped into words, characters whose contents could scarcely be called language at all. I nevertheless assured the general that this lady of mine would learn the dispatch off by heart all the same. "'Tis impossible." "'Nothing is impossible. Once when we were actors—' "'Then you were actors, and this lady was an actress too, eh?' "'Yes. Once our whole company went to Essek, and there we acted a whole piece in the Croatian tongue without understanding a word of its meaning. A man is like a starling. If he repeats a thing a hundred times it remains in his head, although he does not understand it.' "'Look here, then. Read but two lines of this dispatch a hundred times over. Half an hour will do, and see if it remains in your head.' I consented. A quarter of an hour had not yet elapsed when I said that I was ready. I gave the general the dispatch back again, and asked for ink and paper. And then slowly, meditatively, I wrote down the contents of those two lines, letter by letter. "'You've got a marvellous headpiece,' said the general, in amazement. "'And has that lady of yours just such a marvellous retentive capacity as you have?' "'Just the same.' "'Then I consider the stratagem as feasible.' Here I could not help leaping to my feet— what cried i you actually undertook to learn by heart a whole dispatch written in cipher no my sweet friend i won't deceive you as i deceived that other man the whole thing was a delusion the cryptograms which reached the commandant of the fortress were entrusted to rengetegi that he might unpod them with a secret key he communicated this key to me one had only to know a single word whose consecutive letters repeated all the characters of the alphabet in different series. The whole thing only required a little calculation. There was no need to rack one's brains about it. With the assistance of the secret key, I first of all deciphered the cipher, and then I retransferred it into its original rigmarole. But are you aware, I interrupted, that if the general had found you out, he would have shot you on the spot? I suspected as much but he suspected nothing. He was really a good, worthy man. He said that things being as they were, he could safely confide the dispatch to my hands. 
After that he pointed out to me on the military map the route I ought to take through Galicia, by which I should possibly avoid falling in with the enemy's squadrons. My passport in the name of Madame Janos Bagatoy he filled up with his own hand. I begged him to leave a blank space for the personal description of my travelling companion. When this was ready he gave me a portfolio full of Austrian banknotes, besides a hundred louis d'or and a handful of silver money. Then he pressed my hand and said, The last line of this dispatch announces the promotion of Captain Rengetegi to the rank of Major. At this both Bessie and I laughed heartily, and then she merrily resumed her story as follows. My return journey was in a much more lordly fashion. Everywhere relays were waiting for me. In a couple of days I reached Vienna. While still in Comorn I had learnt that my mother had gone there for a refuge, and still kept up her intimacy with a certain high official in the Imperial Army. He was in the service of the war minister there. It was not difficult to find him. I will leave you to picture to yourself the scene of our meeting. My mother loves acting, but she is a bad player. She never knows her part. She would have liked to have cried and fainted when I came rushing in, but she got no further than sobbing. I was all the better able to play my part. I hastened to excuse her for her bad behavior at our last meeting. I took all the blame on myself. I ought to have remembered, I said, that it was not the proper thing to cling on to my mother's carriage when the infuriated populace was seeking her life. Then I went on to the motive of my coming there. The Hungarian governmental commission at Komorn had ordered that every Austrian banknote which could be laid hands upon was to be burnt in the middle of the marketplace. My mother had forty thousand florins in banknotes, which the orphanage fund had retained from my patrimony. This amount had been lent out to various persons at interest. These persons, as soon as they heard of the order of the governmental commission, had hastened to deposit their German banknotes, not in the fortress, but in the town bank, that they might at least get back their securities, and thus it was our money that would be burnt. That was why I had come at such a breakneck pace, I said. If my mother would give me a power of attorney for the purpose, I would immediately return, and, as I had great influence with the commandant, I would so manage that our money, instead of being burnt, should be handed over to me. After that I would settle with my mother. She also had money locked up there, which I would get handed over to me. The proposition made an impression. I had already informed my mother by letter of all this when communications were freer than now, but she, as all nervous people do with their letters, the moment she recognized my handwriting in the address, put it away without opening it. She fancied it was full of maudlin penitence. Now, however, when I called her attention to this letter, she took it out and opened it, and almost fainted with terror when she saw the annexed official communication of the governmental commission, and learnt therefrom that the term fixed for the bonfire of the Austrian banknotes would be reached in three days. Then there was such a scampering to her good friend the high official, and to all sorts of high commanding officers, in order to procure for me a safe conduct. Then she got me a power of attorney neatly written out, by means of which I could reclaim her money, and then she said, Now, don't wait a moment, my darling girl, but jump into a fiarce and gallop off to Comorn. I found my journey back much freer from obstacles than my coming away. The self-same major of coursers, who would have had me flogged as a gypsy leader, was now full of courtesy towards me. After reading my letter of introduction, in which the object of my journey was mentioned, he could not have the slightest doubt that I was about purely private business, which was very pressing. 
He did not even have me searched. I could have smuggled into the fortress anything I liked. When I had passed through the besieging lines, I turned off from the highway in the direction of Hayteny that I might seek out my captive. After the first delights of meeting each other again were over, I told him the whole story which I have just been telling you. I must say that I had a much more appreciative audience than you are. At the sensational scenes he flung himself on the ground, and with folded, uplifted hands implored the wolves not to devour me. He swore that if he caught the ban of Croatia, he would dance the life out of him for making me fiddle so unmercifully. When I dictated to him the dispatch I had learnt by heart, by means of the secret key, the last lines of which contained his promotion to the rank of major, he exclaimed, with an irresistible burst of grateful emotion, My queen! My Zenobia! I had made him a major. He made me a queen. We were quits. And now let us hasten to the fortress, said I, for I have urgent business there. I want to save my property. Our house has burnt already. If our money is burnt too, we shall be beggars. This made him hasten. I must, however, he said, devise something to round off my expedition, something of the quality of a heroic deed. And by the time we had reached the fortress he had devised something. The return of the courier with the dispatch of the Hungarian commander-in-chief created an extraordinary sensation in the fortress and spread even to the town. The commandant immediately proclaimed that Captain Theomer Rengetegi had been promoted to the rank of major by the Hungarian war minister for extraordinary services. A banquet in honor of the returning hero followed. All the officers were present. The ladies also took part in it. I was there, too. Never had I seen Balvignoisi. I beg his pardon, Rangitegi, play his part in so masterly a manner as on that evening. He was the gypsy leader who, with three others, fiddled his way right through every hostile camp, and what amusing adventures befell him on the road. I believe he laid under contribution every book of gypsy anecdote that was ever published, and when he came to that ghastly scene with the wolves, that was indeed a drastic description. The reality was nothing like so horrible as his account of it. The ladies swooned, the men were horror-stricken. Only I was inclined to laugh. And when the gorillas turned up, how valiant my Rangitegi became all at once. He took horse and started off in pursuit of the cuirassiers. To him they were cuirassiers. It would have been beneath his dignity to have been chased by mere hussars. By way of climax came the splendid description of how he cut his way through the besieging host. In the dark night, amidst a blinding blackness of midnight snowstorm, he cut his way on horseback through the Austrian foreposts, leaping over trenches and earthworks, with a bullet skimming about his ears right and left. His horse was shot dead beneath him, but ever equal to the occasion he hastily fastened on his skates, and skated with the rapidity of lightning over the frozen Jitva and the Chilets, and two other rivers the names of which I never heard of before. Thus, at last, he reached the fortress. Everyone was enchanted with the narration. The ladies rose en masse and kissed him, and improvised a laurel wreath for his brows out of muscatel leaves. To save appearances, I also went up to him, that I might condole with and congratulate him upon all the exploits and sufferings he had gone through, when all at once my friend turned quite stiff and rigid, gave me a cold bow, pursed his lips, and turned up the whites of his eyes. Madam, said he, I have a word or two to say to you also. 
Where were you, may I ask, while I was jeopardizing my life a hundred times every day for my country? Can you tell me how you were occupying your days all this while? I was confounded. Language died away on my lips. The blood rushed to my face. I felt that everyone was now looking at me. Naturally, nobody in Comorn had seen me all this time. If what the world whispers out to be true, and you have in the meantime been to Vienna, but no, I will not believe it. His magnanimity offended me even more than his indictment. What is it to you whence I come or whither I go? I replied, turning my back upon him and beginning to talk to the young officers, like one who has nothing to be ashamed of. Shortly afterwards I quitted the banqueting-room. I hadn't reached the end of the long pavilion corridor in the fortress when Rengetegi came running after me. "'What on earth possessed you to calumniate and accuse me before the whole company?' I said to him, just as if I were a traitor, or I don't know what. "'Tisk! Zenobia, my queen, let us understand each other. It was in your own interest that I had to feign jealousy and rage. Let us go into my room and I'll explain everything.' When we were alone together, he locked the door and then explained things nicely. It concerns your money. Aha! Amidst all this laudation, appreciation, and ovation, and all the other flummery, I did not lose sight of the main chance. I told the governor privately that if he wished to reward me in any way, he might do me the favor not to give to the flames the property deposited in the bank to the credit of the damsel who was so near to my heart, but allowed me to bring it back to her. The austere patriot was as inexorable as Brutus. Never, said he, we will burn what we have laid hands upon, even though it were the property of my own father. We can make no exception. What would those poor devils say, whose paltry ten or twenty florins we surrender to the flames of the auto de fee, if we allowed the forty or fifty thousand florins of the rich to fly away? Burn they shall. This he said with a very wrathful voice. Then he added in a milder tone, However, I'll confide the burning of them to you. Now I began to understand. A quarrel between us, therefore, has become an absolute necessity. We must fly into a rage with each other. The auto de fee will take place in a couple of days. The bonfire will be in the center of the public square. I shall throw the bundles of banknotes one by one among the sputtering faggots. You must be close by the booze of the bread-sellers, and break out into curses. You remember the cursing scene from Deborah? Very well, it may be useful. After the auto de fee, there must be a lively scene between us. We must cast our mutual souvenirs at each other's feet. I'll throw you the embroidered cushion which you worked for my birthday, and inside it will be the money belonging to you and your mamma which I have rescued. Then be off as quick as you can to Vienna. But how about the packet that you have to burn? Leave that to me. A few copies of the Comorn News will give every bit as brisk a flame. Everything happened according to his instructions. I saved our property, and you must admit that my friend and I displayed considerable prudence on this occasion. We did nobody any wrong. I only recovered what was my own. Then we fell out together publicly, as preconcerted. My friend, Rengetegi, played Othello in a masterly manner. Then, as our acquaintances could not succeed in reconciling us, we solemnly separated, and I went back to Vienna. On the way back I again fell in with the Austrian major. I showed him the money I brought with me, naturally without letting him know how I came by it. 
he became so friendly as even to entrust me with a letter to an old acquaintance of his in Vienna, who was none other than my mother's colonel. You may imagine the friendly reception which awaited me when I returned to Vienna and gave my mother her money. She folded me in her arms, covered me with kisses, bedewed me with tears, and called me her darling child. What still remained of my patrimony, about forty thousand florins, I placed in the Vienna savings bank. The rest of my dower was in the hands of Muki Bagatoy, with the exception of what we spent while we lived together. This also I contrived to get back again. But how? In the spring, when the fortune of war changed, Colmorn was relieved, and I hastened off home again. I told my mother that I was urgently bent upon building up again our burnt house. Only the roof had been burnt off, the walls remained standing. She approved of my resolution, and was very proud of having such a sensible and enterprising daughter. I immediately set about rebuilding our house, taking advantage of the time which elapsed from the raising of the first to the beginning of the second siege. During my stay at Vienna I moved continually in military circles, and I saw quite plainly what was coming. But why reopen my wounds? All my illusions were over. I had learnt to know my hero at close quarters, behind the scenes, I might say. This lord of creation used to whine before his tailor for a respite with his account till next payday, and immediately afterwards would ascend his triumphal car drawn by captive kings and acclaim to the populace of conquered Constantinople. But in one particular thing, Major Rengetegi really extorted my admiration. I mean by his strategical science. Ah, cried I. You may well say, ah. I have read the campaigns of Napoleon I. I have read the campaigns of Charles Twelfth, But in none of them could I discover so many ruses of war as my hero invented in order to triumphantly solve the problem. How a man in his capacity of superior officer may constantly be taking part in the most ticklish skirmishes, without allowing his person to get into the way of any wandering bullet. He always knew how to hit upon some mission whereby he might manage to skedaddle out of danger. And if I now and then fluttered the red flag of self-esteem before his eyes, he would reply, I have duties towards art. If they shoot away half my leg, how shall I be able to act on the stage again? Yet when the battle was over, who so great a hero as he? Others only mowed down the enemy. He thrashed them afterwards with a flail. Tis a dreadful thing when a woman discovers that her hero is a habitual liar, lying with a fiery burning conviction that no man will dare to doubt him, so that she has to make him swear to the truth of every word he utters. Meanwhile, I continued my house-building. Every sort of building material was dear, and there was plenty of money, too. Whence did all this money come? I'll tell you. The Russian hosts had already invaded the kingdom. The speculator species perceived that the national cause was declining. The Hungarian armies were everywhere falling back. Then Klapka, by a brilliant victory, raised the second siege of Komorn, and was within an ace of capturing the besieging hosts. The region was instantly alive with people, and a whole series of triumphs followed one after another. And now there flocked to Komorn from every part of the kingdom quite a tribe of panic-stricken speculators and jobbers, with bags full of Hungarian banknotes, and bought everything that was for sale, at whatever price the sellers liked to ask. My Muki also took advantage of this lucky period to regulate his finances. He sold his herds at four times their real value, and paid the price, in Hungarian banknotes, to deposit in the bank at Komorn. 
It was my dowry paid back, he said. The bank hastened to place the amount in my hands, and I hastened to satisfy therewith my architects and builders, who did not let the money stick to their hands. Doesn't this remind you of the round game we used to play as children, when we lit a straw, and sitting in a circle, passed it round from hand to hand? Whoever was the last to hold it till the fire burned his hands, him we used to thump unmercifully. That was the forfeit? Just such a burning straw was the dowry paid back to me by my husband. The roof on my father's house was the straw end which remained in my hands. The amount which I deposited in the Vienna bank is all that I have left in the world, except Tihamerengetegi. But not even he has remained mine, for he has changed into Balvanyosi. And now here we are together. The playing of a common part unites us. From morn to eve every word we say to one another is a lie. It is not even true that any one is pursuing Rengetegi, for at the capitulation of Comorn he received his safe conduct which guarantees his life and liberty. That is not what distresses him. But he wishes to deny the whole part he played during the revolution. That as Balvanyosi, the theatre director, he may get the necessary concession. He is continually urging me to go to Miskolts to the government commissioner, and settle the business for him. I understand. No, you don't. It's none of those interventions which we see in romances and dramas, when a pretty woman goes to move a mighty tyrant with her tears, and sacrifice her charms to him as the price of the life and liberty of her persecuted husband. Oh, no, my hero is no plagiarist. His ideas are all original. He wants me to go to the mighty gentleman, and tell him that the Debertson expedition, which has given rise to the whole of this heroic poem, is not his crime, but mine. I was the gypsy leader who played before the Ban Yelachich, and then escaped. It was I who carried the dispatch to the Hungarian government. In a word, I am to sacrifice myself on his account. Fee, fee, and you still love this man. What am I to do? I have nobody but him in the wide world, and besides, he is such a droll, amusing character. All day long we are either fighting or frolicking, and it is this variation which makes life so charming. But for all that, she flung herself on the ground and hid her face in the green moss. She was in such a good humor. Shan't we give our friend a signal to come out of his hole? He is quite comfortable. Don't disturb him. I wonder you don't hit upon the very obvious idea of putting an end to this pantomimic game of hide-and-seek. You have a foreign passport. You could enter your friend in it under some such description as major demo or traveling companion. You could take him with you to Naples or to Paris, and you could live without care on the interest of the fund deposited at the Vienna Bank. I know that. Then why not do it? Because I don't choose. And as she said this, she looked strangely at me with her enigmatically mysterious eyes, in which heaven and hell were blended together like starlight in darkness. End of chapter 13